Hello everyone, my name is Robert McNabb. I'm a fifth year pupil here at Blackrock College and I'm the chair of the Green Schools Committee. This week we are celebrating Environmental Awareness Week at Blackrock. Across the week we've been promoting a number of different themes and initiatives to highlight the many challenges that face the environment. I'm delighted to be joined today by Owen Cassidy, a leading energy lawyer with significant experience and expertise in the area of energy law and environmental law. Owen is a past pupil of Blackrock College and is currently a partner with Mason Hayes Curran Law Firm in Dublin. Owen, it's great to have you join us and thank you for your time. Thank you, Robert. Uh, delighted to be here with you. Um, important week in the school's calendar, I'm sure. Um, for our viewers, can you briefly describe what the role of an energy and infrastructure lawyer is? So um, in terms of what I do, I, I advise clients on various aspects related to energy and infrastructure and the environment. So advising clients on transactions that's you know buying or selling um, companies and businesses and infrastructure projects um, advise them on contracts um, related to those projects and um, regulation and policy which applies to how those projects are built or how they are operated and um, my advice also sort of extends to planning and environmental compliance and sometimes litigation so it's quite a broad um, area I sort of see myself as more a sexual uh, lawyer advising clients in that sector. And then I would work closely with some of my specialist colleagues within the office who, you know, are, are pure planning and environmental lawyers or pure litigators uh, or pure regulatory lawyers. So um, it kind of would be a lot to do a lot of the client interface um, just around energy and infrastructure space. So definitely a very expansive career anyway. You studied law after leaving BlackRock. At what point did you want to gravitate towards the areas of energy and the environment in your legal studies and work? I have to admit, I kind of stumbled into it. Um, I, after I, I went, to, I did business and law in UCD. And when I got to the end of that, I actually thought I wanted to do marketing or accounting. Um, and I went, I went traveling for a year and I went, work, and went down to Australia and I I got a job working as a paralegal for a very large law firm in, in Australia called Clayton Newts. And I was working on um, a construction dispute. So a dispute that was related to the construction upgrade to Sydney Airport for the, the, the 2000 Olympics. And I actually just started when I started getting into that that area of construction law, I found it really interesting. And I realized actually, you know, the legal aspects of what you do in a solicitor's practice are actually very different to the academic study of law in college. And there's some bits of the same, but just applying the law to the commercial issues that are being faced by your clients was something that I was kind of realized that, that I enjoyed a lot. Um, so when I came back from Australia, I um, got a training contract with Mason, Hayes and Kern, and they had established a new construction practice. So when I was, you know, I, I qualified into that group and um, and one of the streams of work that we were doing at the time was really early stages of the kind of commercialization of, you know, of um, of wind farms on a sort of what, what I'd call an industrial scale. Um, and uh, when I was working, we were working with some clients just on those those projects, on the construction aspects of those projects, I realized that, you know, I really enjoyed working in that sector and I, I was enjoying reading into all of the different um, aspects of how you get from what is a field to ultimately what is a, you know, industrial size, you know, turbine, which is generating, you know, huge amounts of electricity from the wind and exporting that to the grid. So I, I just I sort of started enjoying that. The environmental piece then, and environmental and planning piece um you know, that flowed from that. You kind of, as a lawyer, you, you, you live and die by the needs of your, your clients. So um, you try and develop um, expertise in areas that um, are relevant to your clients at that stage in their business profile. So, um, you know, environmental and planning compliance was becoming more and more important to, to my clients. So that was sort of an area I focused on and, and, and helped grow the practice in Mason, Mason, Curran. Interesting. How have the cases you've been involved with as an energy lawyer changed over time? Uh, over the past few years, have you noticed a tangible shift in, in interest in renewable energy projects and an increased demand from clients? Yeah, absolutely. So, so that would have, so say working on onshore wind farm projects would have been a small part of what I would have done as a newly qualified um, solicitor. 
and we I would have still been involved in sort of general construction disputes and claims um, for building projects and um, you know development contracts and that kind of thing. But but um, as the energy sector and the renewable energy sector, well, the energy sector was sort of deregulated so that you got a lot more new entrants into the market. It was no longer just dominated by by ESB in Ireland and. A lot of private enterprise and investment came into into the sector, um, and there were sort of initiatives that were introduced by the state to help support the introduction of um, help support the investment in, say, onshore wind. Um, so um, that has re- that 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 really changed a, like a remarkable shift in terms of you know what was being built in the Irish market and how we were generating electricity in Ireland. Um, and as I kind of we got into that space with clients and their needs became more and more sophisticated as that market grew, both in terms of financing, in terms of investment structures, um, but also actually their engagement with um, the, the, the local population. So what we saw was, um, it be, you know, becoming harder to obtain planning consents for, for, for large infrastructure projects. There was this, you know, some levels of nimbyism around projects and um, more sophisticated objectors in how they went about trying to stop these developments being built. And our clients needed advice on those aspects. So, so there was a sort of a changing dynamic there um, over the years. So again, just following, you know, trying to, trying to be a step ahead of, of what, of the demand that we expect from our clients in terms of legal services. Airgrid reports that by 2027, the data, se- the data centers of multinational corporations in Ireland will account for 31% of the nation's total electricity demand. What developments in infrastructure and legislation will need to be made in order to meet this demand without compromising the environment? Yeah, it's, it's, a, re- it's a really good question, you know, um, because um, there's been this huge growth in data centres. So we act, so we act for a number of data centre developers and operators in Ireland, and and, and banks financing those those projects as well. And um, they consume a huge amount of of, of energy um, and, and electricity. Um, so um, I think it, you know when we we talk about where Ireland is going from a decarbonisation point of view and making sure we've got a sustainable economy. We have to balance that with the fact that energy growth is actually we're one of the you know the few few countries where demand for electricity is increasing, right? So you see in a lot of jurisdictions, more mature markets, and um, that ha- would have had large scale industrial um, history, uh, you know their actual electricity demand is is falling in some cases. So in Ireland, we're we're expected to see a growth of over, of, of potentially up to fifty percent in uh, in electricity demand over the next ten years. This is on some of the air grid forecasts. And half of that, you know, half of that is likely to come from, you know, um, people buying electric vehicles, right? So charging, no longer using petrol or diesel, um, people putting in heat pumps in their house, so no longer relying on gas or oil for the purpose of heating their homes. But 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 over half is going to come from large users, and, and, and a significant amount of that is going to come from new uh, data centers in the Irish market. So what's that going to trigger is, you know, in order for Ireland to meet our, um, our, our binding commitments in relation to um, uh, uh, decarbonisation of the, of, of the economy, um, it means we're going to have to put more um, electricity generation onto our system. And that's going to mean more um, electricity cables and wires or transmission lines around the country. Um, and in order to do that, um, it means a lot of policy changes and legislation changes have to be brought into play to facilitate, you know, the, the upgrade of Ireland's electricity network, but also to facilitate, say, the development of offshore wind um, in Ireland. And actually encourage investors in stepping up to place very large, you know, amounts of money on the line to to uh, to make those, you know, those projects actually happen. There's definitely some very relevant considerations we need to be making moving forward with all these big projects. Um, yeah, no, I, no, I think I think it is. I think you know, I think um, 
just in terms of even just the, the policy decisions around, you know, does Ireland want to be, you know, the data center hub for Europe? You know, like we have a lot, there's a lot of, um, there, there, there's a lot of reasons why Ireland's an attractive location for those kind of investments. But um, there, the, the, there's, there's countervailing concerns, you know, in terms of do they create much employment, you know, or, you know, is it now putting too significant demand on our energy and electricity system? Um, um, but, but, but for example, Ireland is, is, is uniquely placed to um, potentially, you know, you know, power these types of data centers using clean, clean electricity because um, we've got such great uh, wind resources in, in the country. So, um, so there's a lot of, a lot of different things that, that we need to be thinking about uh, as a country about where, where we want to be um, uh, for, you know, with these, these, these projects. Speaking about um, Ireland's position in the international market, you've acted for clients based outside of Ireland who are looking to invest in or fund projects here. Can you tell us something about what type of clients these are and why they are interested in Ireland? Yeah, so so a lot of our clients are based outside outside of Ireland. So it'd be you know banks, you know, German banks that are operating out of London branches and you know funding projects in the Irish market, and Canadian pension funds looking at investing and acquiring assets in the Irish market, um, developers um, you know based in the UK, based in Spain who are interested in in developing projects in Ireland. So we're large scale utilities that are looking to grow. Um, uh, their infrastructure um, or, or grow and uh, their um, offshore and solar platforms in, in Ireland. Um, so, you know, what, what do they what do they look for in Ireland? Why, why are they looking at Ireland in the first place? Um, um, number one, you know, Ireland has kind of demonstrated an ability to, to 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 step up to the mark in terms of trying to encourage the growth, um, particularly around say on the onshore wind side of things. Um, we have very good natural resources um, for those type of projects. But I think one of the things they like about Ireland is that, um, uh, and, uh, is that uh, we've had a f- quite a stable regime here, um, which is supported of, supportive of international investment, both in terms of how our corporation tax has been structured and maintained in a, in a stable way, notwithstanding, say, the, the, you know, the, the Great Recession, um, uh, over you know over ten years ago, and also say the fact that we had a support scheme in place um, that 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 wasn't um, uh, wasn't targeted as a as a as an easy win for from a money saving point of view by the state during the Great Recession. So um, there's um, that level of stability in the Irish market has been very attractive to international investors. Now, it's not to say Ireland's not without its failings. Um, we've been, whilst we have a very stable regulatory um, and legislative structure, we are slow to implement policy and we're slow to make changes to legislation which would encourage and support um, investment in, in, these, in these type of projects. Looking at that legislation, the current program for government seeks to deliver net carbon emission reductions of 7% per annum up to 2030 and a net zero target for 2050. Are we on track for such numbers and what changes would we have to make if we're not? So I think the net carbon emission reductions are going to be um, very, very difficult to achieve. Um, and it's going to require dramatic changes in how... Um, you and I kind of live our lives, uh, um, and it won't be achieved through investment in, you know, wind farms and that kind, of, you know, solar plants or battery storage alone. It's going to require a dramatic shift in how we live our lives. Um, and how does the how does this how does the government you know facilitate that dramatic shift? You know, it, 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 it's it's it's. It, it's going to require, you know, lots of new policy and legislation, which, you know, they actually have stepped up to the mark, you know, with the climate action plan that was introduced. And this government has um, has been pretty good, I have to say, um, compared to previous governments in, in moving these policies forward and actually delivering on commitments and timelines that they've indicated. So I'm quite hopeful from that point of view that, um, you know, that the policy and the legislation will get there. Um, in terms of are we on track to achieve those numbers, um, 
by by 2030. I think we're probably going to be as a nation quite good again at achieving our um, our t- the targets in relation to the generation of electricity from renewable sources. I think um, it is going to be difficult to say, trans, uh, you know, in relation to transport and heat, um, um, for for this for for the for the, the the country to to achieve the the ambitions there. Um, you know, there's major retrofitting initiatives that are required um, to to housing to to reduce you know the the carbon impact of heating our houses, um, and and also from a transport point of view, you know, there's you know, whilst the, the pickup in electric vehicles is, is you know, is, is starting, is going well, it needs to increase dramatically. And that is going to have consequential impacts, as I said, just in terms of, say, even the, 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 the grid infrastructure that's in place in Ireland at the moment to, to deliver on that. Um, and we are still going to require, you know, a lot of um, um, uh, backup gas, uh, for for generation of plants, like we will, we 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 are unlikely to have coal. You know, we've shut down our peat plants. We're unlikely to have coal plants. You know, uh, but we are still going to need um, backup generation for gas. So wind, battery storage, and solar um, are not going to be sufficient um, to to fully support the grid in a in a, in a net zero way. So um, I mean that's the dream by 2050 and perhaps this new technology will come into play between now and then. But um, I think, uh, yeah, I'd be, I'd be generally, I'd be generally positive. Um, but I think to get there, it's going to need like huge commitment from government, from business, from consumers and individuals um, to, to achieve it. Can you tell us a little bit about Green Month at Mason Hayes Curran and how it started? Yeah, so, so Green Months was actually started as an initiative from um, um, some of the, 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 the staff in Mason, Hayes and Curran. They decided that they wanted to have a specific month where we would put, you know, put in place initiatives um, to, um, to, to improve how we do our business in Mason, Hayes and Curran in a way that is more sustainable and has, a, you know, has a, a, and reduced the impact on, on the environment. So, it was a committee that was established um, uh, by one of the secretaries uh, in the office, and it was very much a grounds a grounds up type committee, um, and and then got significant support from from the partners in the office. And um, we are in our our fourth year of it of it now, and um, it um, you know it's sm- a lot of it's small things, right? So. It was something like, you know, removing bins from beside people's desks. Now, that sounds kind of stupid, but like actually if you and, and changing the size of the bins in the kind of the central areas so that the, 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 the rubbish bin, which is going to the dump, was very small. The compostable bin was, you know, a little bit bigger and the recycling bin was even bigger than that. And that's actually bizarrely had like it had a really had a really big impact on the amount of waste that we were generating in 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 the firm um and the and it made people more conscious about um you know products they were buying that were creating waste um um knowing that you know they're gonna have to get up from their desk to i mean it sounds ridiculous but actually the physical thing of moving getting up from your desk to go to the bin was kind of as 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 reduced the amount of waste that people were, were were creating in the office um, um, another, you know, another one we did that was con- actually the most controversial thing the Green Committee did was to um, ban disposable cups for the month in our canteen. And um, so every, you know, everyone had to use just the ceramic cups that were washable. That, again, it sounds crazy that it was annoying people so much, but that, you know, there was almost a revolution in the office when you know when that when that happened. But um, but then again, it changed people's behaviours and. Um, fewer people when you know when the disposable when the disposable cups came back they came back in a compostable version but even then fewer people were using them in the office um so there have been lots of different changes and things and again it's the idea we, and then we do during the month we run a lot of initiatives about you know um uh, like the, you know there would be uh, vegan days uh, in the canteen and cooking classes around um you know taking meat out of people's diets or reducing the amount of meat that people are eating um, and um, we had someone who came in to teach talk to us about beekeeping you know lots of different things but all 
all um, with a very sort of positive message. So you definitely had some great success in changing mindsets then just from that basis of employees. Yeah, I, I think I think it did. So we, we also, I, when I participated in last year, um, we had um, a trainee and a partner go head to head for a week to see who could live um, their, their life in a more kind of sustainable way. Um, now, I was screwed from the beginning because I, 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 had a, I'd, 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 I had a business trip to, to, to London and a business trip to Madrid, which coincided with the midterm holidays. And I was, I was bringing my, my wife and kids over, over, over to Madrid for, for a few days as well. So, um, but I think what, what I ended up doing, what I, you know, every, even we, we had, on the business trip, I insisted that the clients who were with us, we were all going to travel on, on public transport. There'd be no taxis. Um, and they bought into the clients bought into that brilliantly. They were they were on board for it. So there were no taxis during the period. Same on my um, same on the the midterm break with 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 the family that we you know everything had to be on public transport. Um, so we you know you kind of make changes. It's definitely made people more aware of the impact they were having you know on on the environment and how they live their day to day lives. And I think that's you know that is a positive thing. Even just the awareness is the first step. Brilliant. Um, looking back to the citizens of Ireland, how do you see our lifestyles adapting to the expansion of solar energy and renewable power? So, um, like the really obvious things that are going to change for, you know, will likely change for people is, um, you know, is, is moving towards either, you know, electric vehicles or air or cycling. I mean, I think actually the, um, the COVID pandemic, certainly for, you know, I live around Black Rock, so, um, seeing the dramatic change in people's lifestyles now from, you know, the, the, the coastal mobility route and the net, you know, the main, the number of cyclists, um, on the roads now is, 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 is super, super to see. Um, so like the solar energy and the renewable power piece, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't really change how we live our life day to day. If it's done properly, it should be seamless, right? So it should, um, but but you'll you'll you will see more like there's new legislation that's coming in place now which will allow um which will make it easier to put larger numbers of solar panels on your roofs without getting planning permission right so so you're going to see you will see more rooftop solar around the place um i don't think you're not going to see people with turbines in their in, in in their gardens and that kind of thing um, I know in some of the school, you know, school books and things, it always looks nice. That you have a house with a turbine in the back and a and a, a, a solar plant on the roof. I think the the, the solar plants, solar panels on the roofs, and that kind of thing will be will, will definitely you know be be the way ahead uh, for that micro generation. And then you know you you know charging your car off of the panels that you have in your own house. Um, uh, not having a gas boiler in you know having a a um, having a heat pump for your heating and and how order in your in your house and um, so those those are kind of those are things that you that you will you will see I think um, the other thing which is again which is sort of linked just to the, the, the pandemic I think you, you most businesses are going to be much more flexible about um, uh, people working from home so even if they have a culture like where you need to be in the office it may not you just may not be in the office five days a week from you know from nine uh, from nine pm till six nine am till six pm and um, so you, you'll you probably you, you, i'd like to see a reduction in you know um in commuting just generally because all of that will have uh, like a consequential impact on um on on, on the environment Branching off from that, what additional legislation would you like to see introduced in Ireland to expedite positive climate change policies and practices? So there is, um, there is, there's a, there's, there's a huge volume of policy legislation that's going to be required to facilitate said, the, the development of, of offshore wind, um, uh, the further development of onshore wind in Ireland, um, the upgrade to the, um, the grid network in Ireland, um, so I think being able to, I think, create a little bit more certainty around um, uh, getting planning permission for those type of projects, I think, is, is possibly the bit that, that's missing. And, it, and it's hard to achieve because you need to try and balance the interests of the community um, against the interests of the individual. So 
where you have individuals that just do not want infrastructure like that being built near their home, you know, they, you know, that they, they, they have, a, they do have a right to, um, to air their views, to raise their concerns. But if we live in a world of nimbyism and that prevents the development of, um, you know, electricity infrastructure or large scale power generation from renewable sources, um, it's going to impact on the community as a whole. So the DSRI, you know, warning range, you know, it potentially 260% rise in electricity prices for everyone if there's a low acceptance rate of renewable energy and, um, and electrical infrastructure. So you can't have a situation where you have, you know, small special interest groups or individuals who are blocking the development of the electricity market to, for, for, for the whole in a way that, that actually benefits um, the, the community as a whole, but also the, the environment. Um, um, and at the same time, you know, it, it, that's not to say that sort of all developers are coming with clean hands. You know, you, there's, there is, through its very nature, like what, what the decarbonisation of the Irish economy is going to require massive, massive investment and that results in new infrastructure, new products, new development, new issues. All of those will have some impact on the environment, and it, and it's trying to balance all of that together in a way that achieves the you know the the, the most positive outcome for, for 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 the whole rather than the individuals. Owen, thank you so much for what has been an absorbing and very interesting discussion. How we consume energy and protect our environment clearly needs to be properly regulated, and you have given us some great insight to your work and the legal end of this activity. We wish you continued success with Green Month of Mason Hayes Curran, and we hope to speak to you again in the future. Thank you, Robert. Thank you once again to Owen Cassidy, and thank you to all our viewers and listeners for joining us today. Hello, I'm Zach. I'm Philip. I'm Alex. And I'm Dara. And we are all junior members of BlackRock's Green School Committee. We've worked on three key stages. Stage 1 is cycle rights, stage 2 is bike racks, and stage 3 is cycle training. The first obstacle we faced was the cycle rights that surround the school. One of our main issues was that there was no pedestrian crossing to ensure a safe crossing en route to school across a main busy road. A large group of students who cross this road are forced to wait on the island in the middle of the road. Our second issue was that the cycle lanes surrounding the school were unsafe. The bus lane in front of the school is shared by cyclists and buses. Also, the cycle lanes have obstacles such as manhole covers and drains. These metal covers can be slippery in wet conditions and can cause cyclists to slip and fall off the bike or swerve into traffic. We submitted our concerns to our local council. We requested a safe and segregated cycle track out of the bus lane. Our local council has begun developments in improving the safety and accessibility of cycling for many students in our local community. The cycle route will be much safer to travel. If we are going to actively encourage cycling in our school, especially with the new improved bike routes, where are we going to store all the bikes? We currently have some bike racks in our school. You can see that these are already full. We applied to Antashka for funding to build more bike racks. Our funding has been approved and we hope that the new bike racks will be built by the start of the next school year. People could still be nervous about cycling on busy cycle routes. A solution to this problem is cycle training. As a school, we think a cycle training workshop would be a great idea to organize for members of our school. We are starting a workshop which includes items such as bike checks, emergency maneuvering, and rules of the roads. We think it would be a great idea to offer this workshop to the whole school. We will start this training with second years, first as older students might already be quite advanced in their cycle skills. Unfortunately, due to COVID-19 running, this workshop is impossible right now. However, CycleRight has designed an online workshop. The CycleRight program is designed to build awareness of cycling on the road. To gather new insight and data, we performed a travel survey. We got over 430 responses. The, the survey involved questions like, how do you get to school? What improvements would you like to see? And if your improvements happened, would you cycle to school? We found out that just under 40% of students take a car to school. 34% of car users said that if their improvements happened, they would start to cycle to school. Now that we've advocated for new cycle routes, proper storage, and cycle training, we need to promote this to our wider community. 
The campus comprises of Willow Park Junior School, Willow Park First Year and Blackrock College. We have decided that the best possible way to reach out to our wider community is to target parents and siblings. Blackrock College publishes a newsletter every term throughout the year. Willow Weekly is the newsletter issued in Willow Park every Thursday by making people aware of new and improved cycle routes, additional storage and cycle training. We hope that as a campus and as a community, we can be more active in our travel. This week is Environmental Awareness Week at Blackrock and it gives us a chance to explore some of the most pressing issues that are impacting our planet and our environment. And I'm delighted to have the opportunity, therefore, to have a discussion with Councillor Schaefer of Fuelon. Schaefer is a past pupil of Blackrock College and is the Green Party representative for Blackrock, Fugerstown, Seapoint and Dean's Grange. Schaefer, thank you for taking the time and your busy schedule to join us today. Thanks a million, Matthew, and, and fair play for it. You got my name exactly right, so fair play for that. It's not easy. Thanks. Um, I mentioned during the intro that you're a past pupil of Blackrock. Were you involved in any form of climate activism during that time? Um, I actually wasn't, to be honest, um, and I wasn't even on the Green Schools Committee, so I'm kind of a bit embarrassed about that. Um, but it's it's kind of strange looking back because we were all aware of climate change and environmental issues, but it was kind of peripheral. Um, there wasn't really the same urgency about it. Um, I, I guess we, we kind of thought that politicians would be taking care of it, but um, you know, I've since then kind of um, realised that that's not really the case. Yeah, and how, how did you get involved then in climate activism? Um, I, I got involved in college really. Um, there were kind of, there were loads of different uh, like societies and campaigns um, for issues that, that were all very important. Um, and I kind of just thought that, that climate was the only issue that was really existential or like probably the most important one. So I wanted to put my efforts into that. Um, I've since come to realize that kind of a lot of these issues around you know economic justice and social justice are in, intertwined with climate um but at the time I, I i thought it was the most important thing so i i was involved in the divestment campaign in uh, trinity where we got the college to um take away all their investments in fossil fuel companies um and then i was involved in the plastic free campaign as well where we kind of kind of semi succeeded in, in getting um getting rid of plastics on campus um, so that, that kind of gave me a flavour for it. And then after university, I joined the Green Party because I kind of thought that was that was kind of the next step. And then kind of you joined the Green Party. And what led you to want to run for elect off, elected office? <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I, I, I really didn't want to. Um, I, I met with Eamon Ryan, uh, who's the leader of the Green Party, and kind of wanted to get involved just after I joined. I kind of asked him um, what, what I can do. And he just kind of asked me where I was from and said there was no one running uh, for the Green Party in the, the, the local elections in 2019 um, and said, asked me if I'd consider it. And I said no. Um, but then a few months later, I said yes. And um, eventually was chosen by the local branch. And yeah, it was really weird, like kind of putting my name up and face up on posters and walking around talking to people. It's very strange. Yeah, it must have been a really weird experience. Uh, what does the, since you became councillor, what kind of work have you been doing and what does your local level work entail? Yeah, so a lot of it um, is really just trying to help people. Uh, people kind of come to their councillors with issues um, and they're, they're kind of as simple and as mundane as, you know, bins or, you know, dog poo or, um, you know, issues with parks or potholes and stuff like that. So a lot of the job is actually, you know, very unglamorous, but... Um, helpful being helpful to people and trying to sort those things out and get talk to the right people in the council to sort those things out um, it, not exactly why I went into politics but uh, I mean the other side of the job is working on policy stuff um, and that's where I'm really interested in so trying to kind of um, shape the council's policies on say active transport um, and cycle lanes and pedestrianization and stuff like that um, and also just trying to trying to you know instill or kind of get it into council policies in other areas like you know building standards and um you know how we deal with waste and things like that to try and green everything or, or make everything climate proof or environmental proof that kind of climate you're talking about your climate proof area there what do you think is the most pressing issue under that umbrella yeah so um I might give you a few if that's okay. <laughs> so I can't no, think of one. Exactly. Um, so 
I'd say from there's probably two things there, the environmental stuff and the climate stuff. And from the environmental point of view, um, it's really the protection of what we have in this area. So the main things are the coastline. Um, and like you've probably seen, it's it's a pretty common occurrence is that there's a sewage village into the into Dublin Bay and, and you can swim in Seapoint or whatever. Um, so the council doesn't have that big a role in that. It's mainly about testing the water and detection. Um, and a lot of the, the work on that has to happen at national level in upgrading our, our wastewater capacity. Um, but that's that's kind of our, our greatest environmental amenity in this county is uh, the coastline. The other part is kind of the mountains, um, Dublin Mountains with all the forests. Um, and Quilcho, which is the, the forestry agency, recently announced that they'll be, um, they'll be converting their kind of clear fell policies where they just kind of cut down areas of the mountains um, and they'll have continuous cover and they'll be doing more um, native Irish um, species, which is great. Um, and then, sorry, just on the climate side as well, um, like the biggest emitter in Ireland in terms of our emissions is agriculture, which is a third. Uh, and we really don't have that much. There aren't that many farms in Dunleer at down or any. Um, so the biggest issues for us are, are transport. So that's trying to get people to cycle and walk where possible and making it safe for that um, and making public transport better. And then also, um, you know, our, our energy efficiency and heating of homes. So transport and kind of buildings, I suppose, are the biggest climate issues. And how do you think the people listening to this would kind of help with that, with those issues? Is there any way in particular or is it just by changing small habits? Yeah, so I, I'm kind of of the point of view that um, if we want to change people's behaviours, um, you have to make it as easy and as simple and as cheap as possible to do that. So that's kind of the, the driving influence behind um, cycle lanes is to make it make it safe for people of all ages to use the roads because kind of like I'm fine, uh, I'll cycle anywhere really, but you know, some a kid who's eight or you know an elderly person. Uh, may not feel safe cycling on the road. So it's kind of about putting the infrastructure in place to make people make the right choices, I suppose. And do you see in the future that the cycle lanes, like in Dublin or in Dunleary, that kind of all the roads will have designated cycle, safe cycle lanes with barriers? Or is that something that's a bit too ambitious? Yeah, that's a a good question, actually. Um, I suppose the cycle lanes are kind of, um, they're kind of, the second best solution, I suppose, the best solution would be that that people who are walking and people who are cycling are actually the priority of the road, and cars kind of just have to have to come second. Um, so, for example, like when you see pedestrianised roads, or, or for example, Blackrock Village now, cars are kind of secondary to people who are walking and cycling. Um, and eventually, hopefully, you won't need a designated cycle lane there; it can just be um, a kind of pedestrian priority place, and maybe even to pedestrianise completely part of that road so that cars aren't aren't allowed into main street but um yeah it's 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 i, I don't know if every road will get a cycle lane because a lot of them don't need it but um for definitely for the main roads it's it's really important to have a connected network of safe cycling facilities and all those safe cycling facilities that were brought in during covid they're all brought in as temporary measures that that was what they're that's what they said they were do you see those continuing long into the future? Yeah, so they're all they've all been brought in on trial basis, um, and I think that's a really good way of testing a policy because if you change something permanently, you know a lot of people raise issues with it, uh, rightly or wrongly, um, with with what a, what the effects will be. So if you trial something and then let people kind of feedback onto whether it was a good or a bad idea, it's a much better way of doing it than changing it permanently. Um, I think that the, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive uh, for a lot of them. So I think, you know, Blackrock Main Street, um, Seapoint Avenue, you know, loads of people who previously didn't cycle are using it now. Uh, it's been really good for the businesses in Blackrock as well. If you've been down anytime recently, it's just buzzing uh, on the weekends. Um, so I'm hopeful anyway that, that people will, will be happy to keep it, but it, it's up to people really. Yes, yeah, so um, we're currently promoting active travel in the school in an effort to get the green schools flag. What do you think needs to be done on kind of like a national level to make cycling more accessible for students? Is it with, this, with the way you said those cycle lanes or do you think we need to kind of train students really how to 
cycle how to cycle safely yeah um so i suppose one one aspect yeah it, it's the um it's kind of putting in, in place infrastructure that, so that's safe for everyone even kind of like primary school kids to, to cycle to school um another aspect could be to, to subsidize bikes for students uh, and make it cheaper um i don't think that kind of education piece is that important um i mean i think people normally these kind of education campaigns are, are framed in um in terms of cars and how to be safe when there's a car nearby um and i suppose the way i see it going or the safest way i think it is is that um cars you know the, the education should be for the driver who is more um more dangerous i suppose to the cyclist than for the cyclist to to um beware of the the driver i'm not sure if that makes sense really the way i've articulated it there but um i suppose it's more about the safety putting making the safety uh kind of guaranteed with infrastructure rather than making safety kind of an educational thing so it's kind of you educate the drivers on how to be safe around cyclists instead of educating the cyclists about how to avoid dangerous drivers uh, yeah sorry maybe i phrased that wrong I, I suppose the best solution is always to have have it so that regardless of education it's safe yeah. so that there, if there's a curb or there's bollards uh besides cycle lanes you know it's cars can't like run into cyclists and cyclists can't veer out onto the road so it's just kind of uh the education becomes defunct but otherwise uh if that can't be possible then you know it's important for everyone all road users to have some education on how to use the roads it's kind of moving away from that kind of well slightly on a lot slightly on from that kind of what message do you have for the young people of ireland in tackling climate change and what advice do you have for young people looking to get involved in the climate action movement um yeah so i suppose to make a, a kind of broader point i think that um a lot of people older people kind of say you know it's up to this generation or it's up to the next generation to kind of sort out this problem and i feel like that's um well, firstly it puts a lot of pressure on us uh people in our teens and 20s to solve a problem that we didn't create um but it's also kind of it's it's kind of given up their own responsibility so i think it's it's really for every age group to be looking at um but yeah specifically um i think if people are looking to get involved um focus on on organizing or joining movements um I'd say probably if you're young, don't join a political party straight away because, you know, it's probably better to be involved in, in a general movement specifically on what you want to achieve rather than a broad political party. Um, and it's about the kind of collective actions and the systemic change rather than your individual actions. So, you know, the decision to have a keep cup is fantastic, but it's not going to, um, you know, it's not going to, to be the whole answer and the whole answer lies in, you know systemic change collective change yeah so instead of just getting a keep cup for yourself try and encourage everyone around you to get a keep cup in that kind of way just on a small level yeah or or make it kind of um at a broader kind of governmental level you could yeah. you could try lobby the government to bring in a, a coffee cup tax or whatever so that you know people are actually um supported and it's cheaper for people to use keep cups yeah kind of on that government level you're that party leader Eamon Ryan is currently Minister for the Environment. Kind of, in a, if you were woke up tomorrow and you were Minister for the Environment, what are kind of the three main things that you would change, <laughs> policy-wise? Oh God, a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> um, I think, I, I I think that's one way we can do a lot better is to to improve the citizen engagement on or citizen involvement on on uh, climate and environmental issues. I think, you know, everyone you talk to wants to make a difference. They might not agree with specific measures, but they all want to make a difference on climate action. Um, and we need to kind of hear those voices and put in place things that help people uh, from a bottom up level uh, kind of make the difference. So like one example I can think of is, for that is like micro generation, which is, you know, producing, um, renewable energy like solar panels up on your roof and being able to sell that back to the grid at the minute it just goes back to the grid for free um but that there's legislation on that coming in this year um, and it really enables people to 
kind of both make money for themselves and also um, uh, create renewable energy. So it's a win-win. Um, so uh, that kind of, I suppose, citizen involvement, enabling that as much as possible. Um, I think related to that, renewables is uh, incredibly important. I think we're the windiest part of Europe uh, in Ireland. Um, like and, yeah, yeah, <laughs> especially when you're by the coast. Um, yeah. So it's it's um, we have the capacity to produce more than our needs in renewables. Obviously, that depends on the weather and the time of day, and you can have kind of um, contingencies in place for when you know the sun isn't shining, the wind isn't blowing. But we have the capacity to produce more than what we need, and we can also sell that to export it to other countries. Um, and at the minute, there's an interconnector being planned between France and Ireland. So we'd have the capacity to sell to the European market. Um, so massive scale up of renewables. But, you know, I'm, I'm saying this, but it's also Eamon Ryan's plan to do that. So <laughs> it's not a very different thing. Um, I'm, I'm not too sure. I, th I think um, the climate bill that's coming in needs to be strengthened. And I'm hopeful that that will be done. Um, but that's a really important thing that, you know, future governments have to obey carbon budgets. Um, so that it, it's kind of, it's not a question, it's not a political issue anymore. It just has to be done. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that being properly published. And how do we get governments in the future to obey that? Because kind of a lot of the stuff, you've got the Paris Climate Agreement, but how do we actually get governments to reach those targets and obey those rules? Specifically in Ireland, I think the Climate Bill will kind of set uh, five yearly um, carbon budgets and the government will have to obey that and it's legally binding. Obviously, if it doesn't obey that, then someone will have to take them to court over it. Um, I think on a, a European and, and global level, um, if I can talk about that, it's, it's kind of the Paris Agreement is non-binding, really. It's not legally binding. Um, and it's really important that the, the uh, COP26, so the Conference of Parties uh, 26, is happening this year in Glasgow. Um, and it's the first time since the Paris Agreement, uh, which will have been six years um, ago by then. Uh, it's the first time that, that countries will be scaling up their climate ambition. It's part of the ratchet mechanism uh, of like upward only climate ambition in the Paris Agreement. Um, so that's going to be really important. Um, and how legally binding that is uh, is an incredibly important part of that. Yeah, and do you think do you think it's important that we saw in the US President Biden rejoin the climate agreement? Do you think that stuff like that is incredibly important, or do you think it's mainly symbolic? Um, so if I can give a yes and no on that, uh, it is symbolic because the climate or the Paris Agreement is uh, non-binding. Yeah, but. Um, you know, it, it can only be good. And I suppose it's the other things that, that Biden has been saying about um, well, some of his other proposed policies, but also the fact that he's, he seems to be uh, indicating greater climate ambition for the US. Uh, and he seems to be um, kind of interested in uh, getting global agreement on, you know, a more a stricter um, and better um, agreement at COP26 in Glasgow. Um, so you know, the, the actual act of, of rejoining the climate agreement or the Paris climate agreement is symbolic. But the, if the U.S. really shows leadership on it, uh, it's it's essential uh, to get other countries, other big countries on board. Yeah. And kind of speaking of other big countries, the Green Party made massive gains in the last European elections. On the back of that, do you think there is enough being done on the European level? Uh, no. Um, and well, I, I mean, firstly, when I'm saying no, uh, we're kind of where are we now? We're about 1.1 or 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial levels of uh, heating. Um, so we've already kind of guaranteed that in place, um, really uh, adverse climate impacts, especially for uh, areas near the equator, and not so much for Ireland. So you know, from that point of view. Uh, even if we decarbonize tomorrow, we still um, wouldn't have done enough. Um, but on, on the other hand, um, some of the stuff that's coming from Europe is quite uh, encouraging. So, for example, the, the Recovery and Resilience Fund um, is kind of 
the EU's answer to stimulus coming out of the coronavirus uh, recession. Um, and it, it'll be, I think, around 700 billion euro. Um, and Ireland is expected to get about 800 million of that. Um, and the conditions around that are really important. So I think, I, I, I can't remember the exact percentage, but a good deal of it is for um, kind of to enable the green and digital transition. Um, and that, that, that will be really important. Uh, another big policy that's coming from the EU is the common agricultural policy, um, renewing that. Um, that's a bit disappointing from what I, I know. It's, it's not my area of expertise, but it, it seems to be um, kind of watering down ambition on uh, agriculture's um, impact on climate, which is obviously very important in Ireland where we have such a big agricultural sector. Um, but to, kind of to answer your question, um, the, the EU has to be a driving force in this and it has to be um, leading the way um, both in the world and in terms of pushing its own member states on um, because it can't be left to national governments to do this. Um, like the EU has brought in so many good um, directives around say habitats and nitrates and things like that. Um, that wouldn't have been done if it was left to the Irish national government and are only being done because uh, Ireland has to do it uh, as an, uh, an EU member state. So um, not enough being done, but um, more can be done, but there are some good things happening from Europe. Yeah, okay, so just to finish off a very broad question for you here, where do you see yourself in five years? Do you see yourself kind of running for office again at a higher level for TD, European level, or do you see yourself just continuing as you as a councillor or even in mm, politics in yeah. general yeah yeah um so at, at the minute i'm i'm working as a policy researcher with the green party um but i um i'm i'm not sure in terms of my so that's my full-time job and the, the councillor is is part-time i'm not sure what i'm going to do with it really um I, I told you at the start, I, I really didn't want to run initially for yeah. politics. And then I, I, I did. Um, and, you know, it is an incredible honor to be chosen by people uh, to represent them. Um, but I've always really seen myself as a behind the scenes kind of guy and a policy, uh, policy wonk. Um, so I'm not too sure. Um, I, I have a few years to make up my mind because the next election is until 2024. But um I, I'm not too sure. I don't think I'd like to be a TD. Uh, that was part of your question. It's just, it seems like it's um, incredibly tough. There's no work-life balance um, and you're always tired and busy. Um, so certainly not at this stage of my life. I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to do that. Okay, well, Schaefer, thank you so much for being accommodating with your time. The message is loud and clear. We all have a part to play in the ongoing challenge to preserve and protect our environment. We wish you well with your work in Green Party at the local level. And maybe in the future, we might still see you enter Leinster House. Thank you once again to Schaefer O'Foylon. Thanks a million, Matthew. I really appreciate it. Thanks.